Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lever Time. I'm David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about another historic strike potentially on the horizon. If you haven't heard, the United Auto Workers Union is currently in contract negotiations with the big three automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis. Contracts are set to expire at midnight on September 14th, and UAW members at those plants recently voted to authorize a strike if a deal isn't reached. With new energized leadership elected this past March, the UAW seems ready for a fight to try to secure workers a fair contract. On today's interview, producer Frank spoke with a reporter from Labor Notes who's been on the ground in the Midwest covering the contract negotiations, and they discuss what a UAW strike would look like, what it would mean for workers, and what it would mean for the economy. For our paid subscribers, we're also always dropping bonus episodes into our Lever Premium podcast feed. Last week, we shared our interview with historian Harvey Kay and progressive activist Alan Minsky about the unfinished business of FDR's Economic Bill of Rights. And coming up next week is my interview with economist Isabella Weber. She was one of the only economists who got it right on inflation. Way, way, way before it was cool, Isabella Weber was warning that inflation was not caused by wages or government spending, but by corporate profiteering. With that in mind, we discuss what can be done to bring down inflation. And here's a hint. It's not necessarily more interest rate hikes or wage cuts. If you want access to our premium content, head over to levernews.com and click the subscribe button in the top right to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to the Lever Premium podcast feed, exclusive live events, even more in-depth reporting, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. As always, I'm here today with Lever Times producer, producer Frank. Hey, Frank. What's up, David? Uh, I'm feeling pretty excited this week. I'm going to be leaving on Saturday for a little bit of vacation with my family. As you know, I am Italian, and I am going to be visiting Sicily, uh, where I do still have family, and it's going to be really great. It's my whole family going, so... I'm only bringing that up not to rub it in our audience's faces, but to let you know that's where I'm going to be in the next two weeks when I'm not here. I keep I'm now imagining you in in White Lotus. So um, uh, (laughs) if anybody watched White Lotus season two, uh, it was set in Sicily. Uh, I'm I'm trying to don't get scammed um, by going to try my best by sex workers in Sicily. (laughs) Um, What else? Don't go on a boat with uh, you know a strange group of. men who may or may not want to kill you for your money. That's right. You know, we're That's gonna, right. We're going to do try our, our best to avoid that. Luckily, uh, we're not like full-on tourists. Like I said, we have actual family there. Like my dad speaks Italian. So it'll be a little bit more of an ingratiated uh, visiting experience. Well, hopefully your family's nicer to you than the long-lost family that they found, uh, that they reconnected with <laughs> in Sicily. Hopefully they're, they're nicer to you than that. Um, for, the, for those who haven't watched White Lotus, it's the HBO show. I, I encourage folks, if you have HBO, to to watch it. There's a lot of rage at the class system. Uh, it's it's a great show. I, I encourage Very folks good to show. watch it. Yeah, it's, it's really great. Uh, before we get to our interview today that producer Frank did with um, the reporter from Labor Notes about the UAW strike, I, I first very quickly want to talk about a story that we just published at The Lever that I hope folks will go check out at levernews.com. It's about Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, or as I've referred to him as Vivek Ramaswampy. Uh, this is a very, very swampy story. 
during last week's Republican primary debate, the this political newcomer, this 38-year-old billionaire, Vivek Ramaswamy, declared that he was, quote, the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for. He's been pitching himself as a kind of Trumpian outsider. He's going to drain the swamp. Uh, he's not connected to the political establishment, yada, yada, yada. He's made an abrupt jump in the polls with this message, although, of course, former President Donald Trump remains the frontrunner for the Republican presidential campaign. But over the past few years, here's the story that you may not have heard about Vivek Ramaswamy, the alleged outsider. Vivek Ramaswamy, as we report, leveraged relationships in the swampiest of swamps, the conservative dark money world. And he leveraged those relationships in order to drum up lucrative public pension investments and consulting business from Republican state financial officers. So he basically drummed up business from Republican elected officials using the conservative dark money network, business funded by retirees' pension savings. In 2022, Ramaswamy launched something called Strive Enterprises, which has been branded as a so-called anti-woke asset manager. Since its inception, Ramaswamy and Strive have relied in part on relationships with Republican state elected officials who belong to something called the State Financial Officers Foundation. It's a dark money nonprofit organization that does not publicly disclose its donors and is closely linked to, wait for it, wait for it, yep, conservative activist and dark money king Leonard Leo, who we do a lot of reporting on at The Lever. Last spring and summer, Ramaswamy and Strive executives contacted financial officers in at least 12 states to try to secure investments from state pension funds, as we report at The Lever. In all 12 of those states, the top financial officer was a member of that shadowy dark money group, the State Financial Officers Foundation. So here's the deal. While Vivek Ramaswamy may be pitching himself as a non-swampy outsider, as we report at The Lever, the truth is he's like most of those people on that Republican debate stage, someone who used his political connections to help expand his own fortune, to help enrich his own company with retirees' pension money, and then use that fortune as he's using it now to try to facilitate his entry into the political world. So this is a story not only of kind of gross moneyed connections, but also a story about how the outsider is not really an outsider. The outsider is really, frankly, an insider's insider. That's my takeaway, Frank. Yeah, I had a bunch of takeaways from this story, and I thought Julia Rock did such a great job reporting it out. One, that these Republican state financial officers have their own dark money network. That's cool. Uh, of course, great, of great, course they do. Great, <laughs> great to learn. Great to learn about that. Also, great to learn. Uh, you know, we didn't just mention it, but uh, you know, Ramaswamy made his fortune from this biotech firm that he had founded, and. I think the main drug that they were working on producing didn't even work, even though he had secured all this investment money. 
Now he's going after pension funds. So it's just like, it's just, this is a story of like grifter doing grifts. And I I think any conservatives or Republicans who maybe have seen this guy and been like, oh, you know, what an interesting, you know, young buck. Maybe he's going to upend the system. It's just more of the same. Uh, I saw someone online describe him as the Republican Pete Buttigieg, and now that's what he is to me. Yes, and and as I said, I you know I, I, I think the nickname is Vivek Ramaswampy. I mean, it, this is a mm. very very swampy tale, and my view is: look, somebody who's a billionaire, we should all look at with a bit of suspicion. I mean, it's not to say that. Literally every single person in the country who is uh, super wealthy is, is is evil, but you should look skeptically at anybody who's been able to uh, accumulate a billion dollars. Typically, to become a billionaire, you have to step on a lot of uh, thousand heirs and a hundred and hundred heirs. Uh, you have to step on a lot of people to accumulate that much wealth. But but on top of that. This story, it's not just Vivek Ramaswamy should be looked at skeptically because he's a billionaire, but he should be looked at skeptically because somebody who's portraying himself as an outsider, whose business is to leverage insider political connections, it kind of reminds me, I mean, this is where he is kind of Trumpy. Maybe it's Vivek Rama Trumpy, right? He's kind of Trumpy in that Donald Trump talked about how he was an outsider who was going to drain the swamp and Donald Trump was one of the swampiest presidents uh, in in the history of the swamp. I, I think that's kind of indisputable. Uh, but that kind of defines our politics today, is that many people now in politics will not portray necessarily only their best side. They'll portray themselves as the opposite, the mirror opposite of what they are, right? In, in this case, Vivek Ramaswamy portraying himself as a complete and total outsider, then you look under the hood and you see he's a very, very uh, serious insider uh, who is not going to drain the swamp, but who at least has had a career of uh, swimming in the swamp. Yeah. Billionaire outsider is an oxymoron. That, that That's a great way to put it, right? I, I mean, there there is... I, I think it's fair to say you cannot accumulate a billion dollars uh, and become a billionaire uh, by being a, an outsider. I, I just don't think that's really a thing. I, off the top of my head, I can't think of somebody who who you could honestly, with a straight face, uh, say that that happened to. Uh, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm happy to be proven wrong. If folks want to email us at the lever, uh, you can always do that and yell at me about our podcast. Find that Vivek Ramaswamy story at levernews.com. It was written by Julia Rock, one of our great reporters. A really, really good story. Okay, let's stop there because we should get to our main interview. And it's an interview about the 150,000 auto workers who could be going on strike as soon as two weeks from now, which would uh, royal, obviously, the auto industry but also likely roil the entire American economy. So our interview goes into what is at stake in these union negotiations, what the workers are asking for, and what might happen if the union isn't able to reach a deal with the big three automakers. That's coming up right after the break. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our main story today, we're going to be talking about a group of workers that has often been on the front lines of labor struggles in the United States auto workers. The famed United Auto Workers Union, or UAW, is one of the largest unions in the country with more than 400,000 active members. 
150,000 of those members are now in the midst of contract negotiations with the big three automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis. Their current contracts expire on September 14th at midnight, and last Friday, workers voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike if a deal is not reached. Under the leadership of new UAW President Sean Fain, who was elected to the top post this past March and who was supported by the militant reform caucus within that union, the UAW is now making bold demands and seems ready to take even bolder actions if those demands are not met. For today's interview, producer Frank is joined by Luis Feliz Leon, a labor journalist and staff writer at Labor Notes, which does great coverage of the labor movement. Luis has been on the ground in the Midwest speaking with rank-and-file UAW members about this current labor struggle. And he explains everything you need to know about the new dynamic within the UAW's leadership. They also talk about what the UAW workers are demanding from the big three and what a potential strike could look like in real time. All right. I am now joined by Louise Feliz Leon, a labor journalist and staff writer at Labor Notes. Louise, thank you so much for joining us on Lever Time today. Thanks for inviting me. So before we get into the details of the UAW, the United Auto Workers contract negotiations, first, I want to set the scene a little bit for our audience. So who are the key players in this current labor struggle between the workers and their corporate bosses? So the contracts for some 150,000 auto workers across the big three automakers, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis are expiring September 14th. After workers gave big concessions to these companies following the Great Recession, the companies are making record profits. The big three have reported a combined $21 billion in profits in the first half of 2023. This comes on top of profits of $250 billion over the past 10 years. To match these lucrative pay raises the CEOs gave themselves, the UAW is demanding 40% raises for auto workers who make these stratospheric profits possible in the first place. So the UAW is raising class struggle unionism, making the contract about us, the workers who generate these profits, and them, the greedy CEOs who are the primary beneficiaries in an economy fueled by turbocharged wealth inequality. And I want to talk about the workers a little bit, because I think a lot of coverage that's come out has come out of mostly the Detroit area, where a lot of the auto industry is located. These 150,000 members that are in contract negotiations and could potentially go on strike, where are they geographically? Are they predominantly in Detroit um, or are they all over the country? Yeah, they're all over the country. So the UAW's overall membership is 400,000. Auto workers in particular are spread across uh, some 247 facilities in every state. There are members in plants in Michigan, as you mentioned, but also Kentucky, Texas, North Carolina, Indiana, Illinois, as well as component plants in Buffalo, New York, and then smaller parts depots scattered across the country. So this is a this is a truly nationwide labor struggle playing out right now. Now, before we get into what's actually happening with negotiations, I want to go back a little bit because this past March, uh, UAW workers voted in a new union president, a guy named Sean Fain, who, you know, folks might have seen on social media, leading rallies and marches. And Sean was backed by the reform caucus within the union called Unite All Workers for Democracy. And his election ousted former President Ray Curry and ended a, which I was shocked to find out, a 70-year 
basically one caucus, one party control within the union. So can you tell us a little bit about that recent history of UAW's leadership and how this election in March set the stage for these current contract negotiations? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and start at, at the very beginning, right? So Fain was elected in March on a slate, as you mentioned, backed by the reform movement, Unite All Workers for Democracy, on a platform of no corruption, no concessions, no tears, ending nearly 80 years of one-party rule in the UAW. They won each seat they contested, coming into office with a clear mandate to take the union in a more militant direction, in organizing, internal democracy, and solidarity against tears. Similar to the leadership shakeup that we saw in the Teamsters in 2021, the Members United slogan, as I mentioned, was no corruption, no concessions, no tears. And they've been true to their campaign promise. We're experiencing greater inequality today than at any time since the Great Depression. Much of inflation was just corporate greed, Workers are seeing employers making money hand over fist while they are being asked to work harder for wages that are worth less and less. That not only drives the shift in expectations that we are seeing, but creates the chance for pitch battles like the one at the big three to become national referendums on corporate greed. So now putting into context some of the, the past history, Fain is a proud member of Unite All Workers for Democracy the reform caucus that helped them get elected uh, to the union's top posts. And that, that caucus is part of a long line of a decades-long reform movement within the UAW, fighting for a more democratic and militant union. So Fain, a lot of folks have spotlighted all the great things that Sean Fain is seeing on CNNBC, making Jim Cramer lose his mind. But it's important <laughs> to highlight that Fain is part of this slate of reformers, right? That won a majority of the seats, including one independent reformer named David Green. The last time a reformer had won a seat on the UAW board was in 1986, when Jerry Tucker of the New Directions movement became a regional director. New Directions coalesced a group of reformers into a rank and file resistance movement in the 80s and early 1990s. And going back even further, the last contested election for the presidency, except for Tucker's run for president in 1991 and other symbolic runs, was in 1946. Walter wow. Ruther won, consolidating his power in a 1947 sweep that accomplished what historian Nelson Lichtenstein describes as nothing less than the elimination of his rivals from old posts in the UAW hierarchy. Fast forward to 2019, the Reform Caucus, UAWD, Unite All Workers for Democracy, began campaigning for one member, one vote. The union's internal review board once described the union as functioning like a one-party state. But then an investigation by the Justice Department laid bare longstanding corruption in the union, including embezzlement, kickbacks, and collusion with employers. 13 union officials went to jail, including two former presidents. The consent decree that resulted from the corruption scandal made it possible for members to decide whether they wanted to directly elect their officers as opposed to a convention delegate system. In December 2021, UAW members voted 63.6% in support of electing top officers through one member, one vote. So this democratization of the, of the union's internal elections allowed UAWD to win every post that they ran candidates for. This is a lot of information. So what are the key takeaways? Unions are dynamic organizations 
They can be reformed. Labor Notes believes that to its core. The UAW of today is a key example of that. Workers can come together and form a caucus to transform their union, modeled after Teamsters for a Democratic Union within the Teamsters uh, and modeled after UAWD within the UAW. We focus a lot on personalities in the labor movement, but it's vital to pay attention to organizations like Reform Caucuses, where members have banded together, like in Unite All Workers for Democracy, to shift the internal culture of their union and move it in a more militant direction taking the fight to employers like the victory. Thank you so much for laying out all of that history. And you went a step further and you gave the analysis, which I think you're right on, which is that unions, like any political organization, require tending to by their rank and file members. They require active participation. Also like American democracy, it only works when everyone is working together to make sure that the organization is as democratic and as equitable as possible. And like you said, these, you know, one party uh, power structures can become codified if, if, you know, if people just sort of let it be for too long. All right. So now I'd like to move to what is happening today. So UAW is in contract negotiations with the big three for these 150,000 members that work for these companies. So what are some of the key demands that the UAW is making from the big three? Yeah, no, that's a great question um, because I think they are lifting class-wide demands <laughs> and it's important to put that in perspective. So the UAW was known once upon a time as the vanguard of the American labor movement. You know, since then it's fallen off that perch, but it may be positioning itself to regain that position. So the UAW is pushing demands that fall under a theme of a better quality of life. Across the working class, we are working longer hours with fewer benefits and retirement security. The UAW is in effect holding a public teaching on class-wide demands, using the big three negotiations as a platform to advance the demand that we all deserve a dignified life. That demand is not only for outer workers, but for all workers who must put in ruling hours on the job to earn paltry wages. Another big demand is job security for auto workers impacted by the electric vehicle transition, uh, given the seismic shifts that are coming uh, to auto manufacturing. There are other demands, including a key one, which is eliminating tiers on wages and benefits, plus the double digit raises for all that I mentioned, where the union is demanding 40% wage increases across the board. So the elimination of tiers on wages and benefits is really important. So put simply, tiers are where long-term employees doing the same job earn more than new hires that are doing the same job with them on the shop floor, right? It erodes solidarity, which is the bedrock principle of maintaining fighting institutions. And uh, I just want to interrupt real fast. And, and these two-tiered wage systems, we saw this recently with the UPS Teamsters negotiations. These two-tiered wage systems were introduced through negotiations for this sort of like old guard, more corporate-friendly union leadership that we've been talking about to essentially throw newer workers under the bus while still maintaining benefits for some other older workers. So it was a way to kind of concede to the bosses without really bucking the membership to uh, aggressively. Is that about right? That's absolutely right. And I mean, I think for these negotiations, one key point of what was given up. So the UAW agreed to tears coming out of the Great Recession 
and the auto company bailouts, right? And they've only grown more complicated and elaborate since then. General Motors workers, Chris Viola wrote a great explainer for Jacobin on, and I encourage your listeners to give it a read. But a sore point is the tier benefits like pensions and retirement healthcare. Workers hired after 2007 don't have retiree healthcare or pensions. These jobs are really grueling. Auto workers describe you know, their bodies breaking down because of the toll of being on the assembly line. So imagine putting in 30 years on the, on the assembly line and then not having the healthcare that you need to live a dignified life in retirement. Like that's outrageous. And that's why members are so fired up and demanding more. So very briefly, some other key demands are the right to strike over plant closures. So Belvedere in Illinois has been idled. Folks have been forced to relocate to plants all across the country. Some have had to pick up other jobs, earning lower wages than what they were earning before. Another demand is to make all current temp permitted employees with strict limits on the future use of temps. Right, A company like Stellantis, which has been a particular focus of negotiations with Sean Fain throwing the proposal that the company put on the table in the garbage can uh, during a Facebook Live, all three are targets. But this company in particular um, has one of the highest number of temp workers, has one of the lowest wages of the big three starting at 1575. So these demands are really bold. They're not just talking about Let's just boost the wages. They're talking about what does it mean to live a dignified life as a worker in this country? Yeah, something I've seen Sean Fain repeat is, uh, you know, record profits demand a record contract. And it really, it sounds like what that is exactly what they are asking for. So historically, the UAW during contract negotiations has only targeted one automaker at a time, meaning like they would only target of the big three, they would only go after Ford or just GM or just Stellantis. But this time around, they may be going after the big three together. Can you explain a little bit about that dynamic and why the union may be changing their tactics this time around? Yeah, no, absolutely. So as you mentioned, in past negotiations, the UAW has picked one of the big three legacy automakers, either Ford, General Motors, or Stellantis as a strike target picking the company that the union believed would agree to the best deal in order to set a pattern for the remaining two. This time around, the UAW has broken from this practice, right? And it has said that all companies are targets, leaving the companies guessing. In 2019, GM was the target after the company closed a plant in Lordstown, Ohio. The UAW struck the company for 40 days, costing it $3 billion. That's what strikes are supposed to do, inflict financial pain to drive home the message that workers generate their profits. This time, the UAW is shifting uh, its tactics. The transition to electric vehicles looms large over these negotiations. For example, the OTM sales plant is a stone's throw away from where the GM Lordstown assembly plant was located. The union has come out publicly with its demands. This is a shift from the past where members only got the highlights or in 2011, I think the union started putting whole contracts online. But members only knew what the union was negotiating after a deal was reached and were never given a clear idea what the goals were going into negotiations. Workers are clear on what the goals are. They have generated the goals that the union is fighting for. These are the members' demands that Sean Fain and the leadership team are pushing at the table. So the idea is to have the companies put forward ambitious proposals if they want to avert a strike. 
Fain, as I mentioned earlier, he threw Stellantis' proposal in a Facebook Live video in the trash uh, because it came back with a subpar proposal demanding concessions. So right now, the, what the union is seeing is that all companies are a target. So we'll see how the companies respond in, in terms of these demands that members have put at, on the table. So would it be possible for all 150,000 of these workers at all three companies to go on strike simultaneously? Um, I mean, anything is possible. I mean, the, okay. they have a big strike fund, right? But I, I'd say that like there's a couple of things to consider, right, in terms of the companies. Stellantis doesn't seem amenable from what we've seen. OTM workers who work for the joint venture between General Motors and LG Energy just got an interim agreement, boosting their wages to 20 to 20 to $21 an hour. It's unclear if negotiations factored into GM leaning into their EV partner. Joint ventures are separate companies, right? So they don't fall into big three negotiations. But the UAW has called for these EV plants to mirror the wages and standards of auto workers at the big three. Historically, Ford has been more amenable, proud of it being an American company, but I don't have enough information to make an assessment. So I'd say that all three are targets until they put a good contract on the table. It's also not necessary to strike every plant within a company to have an impact, right? So that's an assessment that the union would be making as opposed as, as to where they have strategic leverage to force the company to cede to their demands. Got it. So basically everything is on the table and we still have two weeks to see how all of this shakes out. So could could go in one of any direction. And that's a good segue, actually. So the contracts between the big three and the UAW expire uh, in about two weeks from when this episode airs on September 14th at midnight. Uh, this past Friday, uh, UAW workers, those members voted overwhelmingly to authorize a potential strike with 97% voting in favor. And I believe I read some of the plants voted in margins of 98, 99%. So do we have any idea? You just mentioned it a little bit about it, but do we have any idea where they're at with negotiations? Does it seem like there's hope to reach a deal by the deadline? And and what is the posture of the, the big three right now? Are they at all amenable or are they planning on starving the workers out? Yeah, I know. I mean, I think that's a good question. I um, I think that usually the way these negotiations work is that, you know, it's it, it comes down to to the wire in terms of the deadline when they start making some progress. So I, I would say that, you know, from what I've seen, I don't have like any inside information in terms of where things are moving. I, I, I think I answered in part your question in terms of like, what are some of the characteristics of the company? So Stellantis, you know, is a headquarter in the Netherlands, I believe. They're really far. They're, you know, some of their key leaders were on vacation in Mexico. So there, there's a lot there. GM, like I said, they are feeling the heat because of the, the issues at this Ultium plant. Ford, you know, has gotten, all of them have gotten a lot of lucrative subsidies from the federal government in order to expand EV production, right? So I think this is a historic moment for the union. And like Sean Fain has said, you know, record profits mean record contracts. And I think we're going to see a record contract. Who's going to put that contract on the table? We'll have to wait and see. But I've been traveling through the Midwest, and I can tell you that rank and file auto workers are fired up. You know, usually in the UAW, there's always been a culture of striking. So even when the union didn't put much effort into getting people strike ready, once the call came down, workers hit those picket lines and enforced them. So right now, 
that militancy is fueling this campaign and members' expectations are through the roof. Workers repeat what they hear Fain saying on the Facebook Live videos. But one worker told me, it's not that we are hearing Sean Fain, it's that Sean Fain is hearing us. And that's what you're seeing. This dynamic fusion of the membership and leadership is raising expectations as it should. I'm hearing workers say they're saving up to go the distance if a strike is called. The question isn't whether they'll strike. The question is for how long and at what company or all three companies. If I were a CEO at one of these companies, I'd be pretty scared. It's a new day in the UAW and the companies are on notice. I mean, it kind of makes sense that the UAW auto workers in general would be on the forefront of labor struggle historically. And at this moment now, you know, the, the auto industry, one of the first to have the assembly line implemented into its, its work structure, which, you know, completely changed the way that industrialization and the way that factory floors work. So it makes sense that uh, the auto workers are, are here now to get the demands that they deserve. Louise, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for your reporting on this on this story. And uh, where can our audience find you and your writing? So I work at Labor Notes. It's my political home and my workplace. <laughs> so <laughs> Labor Notes has a perspective, which is about rank and file led unions. And what we are seeing is the UAW being led by its uh, militant members in a new direction and a leadership that's responsive and taking those cues from the membership. So Labor Notes will be covering the UAW. We'll be putting out two to three stories a week. So stay tuned. What makes Labor Notes different than many other publications is that we begin at the ground level. We go to the picket lines, we hit the phones and talk to workers to hear directly from them about how they are experiencing their unions, how they're making sense of contracts, and that is very unique. It's not hard to do. It's not hard to pick up the phone and talk to a worker. But Labor Notes is one of the rare media and organizing projects that really believes that at its core. Awesome. Luis, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium, you get to hear next week's bonus episode, my interview with economist Isabella Weber. She was one of the only economists who got it right on inflation. To listen to Levertime Premium, just head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. When you do, you get access to all of Lever's premium content, including our weekly newsletters and our live events. And that's all for just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Levertime on your favorite podcast app. The app you are listening to right now Take 10 seconds and give us a positive review in that app. And make sure to check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing over at levernews.com. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. The Lever Time Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our producer is Frank Capello with help from Lever producer Jared Jacang-Mayer.